Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we will continue our discussion on the impact and response of the COVID-19 pandemic with Douglas Holtzakin. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. How have you been the last couple of weeks? Uh, Life's pretty good. Uh, Weather's not great today, but otherwise, you know, uh, things are fine. Yeah, it's been like that for a couple of days now. But, uh, you know, the last time we talked, I do have to mention this, is you were very worried about your Steelers coming into this stretch of games. And they seem to have showed up, whereas my Patriots, when I was worried, have not shown up at all. So, you know, tail cities here. Yeah, I mean, it it was a a solid win over the Titans, not a great win. Three interceptions you just can't have. And um, I worry more about the Ravens because uh, Jackson's explosive. And, you know, uh, I don't worry near as much about facing Ryan Tannehill. So here we go. Hang well, on. <laughs> we could have an entire podcast just talking about that. But let's uh, let's talk about what we actually should talk about today. So let's pretend it's a week from now and talk about what we might see after the election. Specifically, let's talk about another stimulus package um, that seems to be in the work. Um, you've spoken on TV and written recently about comparisons of stimulus today to that of 2008-2009 stimulus package. Um, first, what is the argument from those on the left who warn about uh, the risk of repeating the same mistakes of the Great Recession um, if we turn off uh, stimulus spending too early? Um, and second, what is the problem with that argument? Well, the the basic argument on the left is that um, what happened in uh, the recovery from the, the Great Recession was they, they did the recovery and um, then everyone got worried about de- deficits and, and they stopped uh, spending more. And, and in particular, states and localities didn't get any help, enough help from the federal government. Uh, and, and there's a big retrenchment and and that that leads to uh, real slow growth in employment overall and a, and a, and a modest recovery. Um, I, I, I'm not convinced by that argument for uh, two reasons. Number one, I don't think the Recovery Act was as stimulative as they do. And and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm less sold. It, it had some genuine stimulus, uh, sort of tax cuts and uh, uh, spending by, by governments, but it had a whole bunch of things that were really the Obama administration domestic agenda down payments. So there was, you know, money in there for electronic medical records. Um, there was money in there to uh, for all sorts of green projects. Let, let's let's uh, do... Uh, uh, a big conversion of the energy portfolio. Those are, um, yeah, they're they're money, but they involve changing your business, and, and change is costly. And so, it's not like you're just trying to put back what you lost. You're trying to create something new, and that's a that's a harder process and a slower process. So, I didn't think the the initial recovery act was really all that great, uh, and they could have done better with it. Uh, they thought they did great, and then the slowdown came from uh, the, the failure to follow through. I didn't think they did that great to begin with, and that's probably why it didn't jump. Second thing is you can't simultaneously stimulate the economy and beat it to death with the club. And they, the Obama administration really did uh, the latter. I mean, it, it went out and it it passed the Affordable Care Act. It passed the Dodd-Frank Act. It didn't pass Waxman-Markey. That, that didn't go in the Senate, but it threatened to pass that. So th- they were – they were engaged in a huge push for very, very costly initiatives um, all, all throughout the economy. You know, health sector is a fifth of the economy. And and they followed that up with, you know, a track record of regulatory 
uh, overreach in my view uh, for eight straight years. Uh, you know, a, a major regulation, an average rate of 1.1 per day for eight years. You know, that's that's just a big headwind for the economy. So maybe if they hadn't done that, we, we would have grown faster. So, so you know, th- there'll be counter arguments, but that's the nature of that debate. Right now, I think it's it's an interesting moment for the economy. Uh, this morning, we got uh, our first read on the the third quarter uh, GDP, and so this is July, August, September, uh, and uh, in that period, the economy grew by uh, 7.4% or an annualized rate of over 33%. So it's a big top line number. Um, and, and so if you think about the stimulus argument, it says, put back what you lost. Okay, what did we lose? Well, we lost uh, a, a big chunk of household spending and um, household spending went down dramatically. It went up dramatically this um, uh, quarter. So it, it grew at an annualized rate of 40%. But if you look at where it grew, it grew in uh, durable and non-durable goods, but it didn't grow as fast in services as it went down in the first quarter. And that's that's always been the key problem in this pandemic, people not wanting to go out and interact with others out of fear of catching and transmitting the virus. And so if you're going to quote, put it back, you have to find a way to do that. And stimulus isn't going to do it. Like that, a check doesn't solve that fear problem. And so that's where I worry about the, the nature of this. Um, two, to, to the um, credit of the other side, we did see weakness in the state and local sector. They've been arguing for more in the state and local sector, and, and, and there could be some merit there. We're, we're accumulating evidence on that front. So right now, that's sort of where we are. I think as you roll the clock forward and we slowly put people back to work, we've done the easy stuff, and we, now we get other people back to work, you're going to have a cadre of essentially long-term unemployed. And if little is done in terms of further stimulus, further help to them, uh, this pandemic-style recession will, in fact, morph into a traditional recession where there's just not enough demand because people don't have money to spend. So I, I think there's a fair concern that as you go forward, you need something for the about 11 million workers who lost their jobs last spring and still haven't gotten back to work. And you care about them both because they are uh, uh, citizens of the United States, but also because they're an important component of, of the household demand. And we got to that we don't lose that. So the economy and the household spending, is that above what we expected? And is that a trend that you expect will continue? Or is there is that maybe just? I think this is about what we expected, um, to be honest. It's ballpark there. Um, it's not going to continue. It's not going to continue for two reasons, both of which should have been anticipated. Uh, number one, you do the easy stuff first, so you get the big jump first, and then it's sort of uh, uh, tends to slow down naturally. So we might go from 33% in the third quarter to, to 10 or something like that in the fourth. Um, and second, we are seeing uh, surges in uh, the, the coronavirus outbreak. And that was always a warning from the experts. You should expect the virus to resurge in the fall into the winter flu season. We're seeing that, and that that's part of the headwinds that you're going to have to overcome. So do the current proposals in Congress look more like the 2009 stimulus package, or do you think that um, they're they're looking like a more targeted approach um, that you're discussing. I think by and large, if you look at, for example, the Heroes Act that that the, the House has taken as their marker, that, that's really very much a, a traditional stimulus. Let's just throw money at it kind of approach, with some exceptions. There's a heavy emphasis, uh, especially in the public relations around this, on a national testing strategy, a national contact tracing uh, a framework. Um, that's 
modifying the traditional approach for the recognition of the virus. And I think that's you have to do that. There are many ways to. Um, on the other side, you, you know, the Trump administration is all in on vaccines. Right? That's their uh, approach to, to this. And they're just waiting for the vaccines to show up. Um, so there's there's some some recognition of that there's a fairly heavy emphasis on worrying about um, renters and homeowners. Right. So we've got some homeowners who have, who have been in forbearance. The CARES Act said you don't have to to pay your mortgage. But when when it sunsets, December 31st, suddenly you'll be in arrears and you have to make that up somehow. Same's true for um, uh, the renters. A lot have been not paying their rent and now um, they're going to be in trouble. And, and so there's some 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 heavy emphasis on that. I genuinely can't tell how big a deal that is in terms of macroeconomics. It's a big deal in your life. If you're in that position, it's, it's an enormous uh, issue. But I can't tell how much of a headwind that will be that we will see around the turn of the of the year. Mm -hmm. So I'll have to wait and see for that. So continuing with the election stuff, looking past the election, if you know we have a President Biden, he's elected, um, he's promised a pretty big tax hikes, um, especially on the wealthy, um, to go along with the stimulus spending. Um, what do we know about the, those tax hikes and um, how might they impact the economy with or without additional spend in, uh, in stimulus spending? In and of themselves, they're, they're going to be a bad idea. You know, if, if literally the, the goal is to walk in the, the door in January, pass a bill that raises the corporate rates to 28 uh, percent, raises uh, payroll taxes on those making more than $400,000 to the full rate of 12 percent on you know, get rid of that cap and, and tax the, their, their payroll, you know, raise the top individual rate, raise dividends and capital gains tax rates. Uh, these are all negatives. We can fight about how much, but but none of that helps the economy grow. And they're especially damaging in uh, trying to recover. So there's a, uh, a a seminal piece of work that was done by uh, a husband wife pair, David Romer and, and Christine Romer. Christine Romer was the first CEA chair under President Obama. Um, and they went back and they they tried to uh, read the historical record about tax changes and isolate those tax changes that happened not because something was going on they were forced to, but because they wanted to. They were truly, we decided to raise or lower taxes, not driven by circumstances, but as a matter of, of initiative and policy. So that's that's more like the traditional science experiment where you treat something and and and, and see if it responds and you don't treat another part. and. and and sort of compare the, the treatment in the control groups. It turns out that if you, you look at the tax impacts of uh, those truly exogenous increases in taxes, they have huge negative impacts. So 1% increase as a fraction of GDP uh, has a 3% impact uh, downward on GDP after uh, two full years. These Biden proposals are literally that kind of an experiment. Once there's no circumstance forcing a tax increase, they're just doing it. And so I worry about that a lot. Um, I, I understand, I don't always agree, but I understand the argument for for uh, some of these tax increases, um, but the, the timing is especially bad. So I, I think they'd be wise to say, yes, we want to do this and we will do it eventually, but we're not going to impose those taxes in 2021. It's a bad idea. Gotcha. Okay, so same subject, but different dish column. Some argued that the new taxes on the wealthy are necessary to fight inequality. But you wrote recently about some problems with that proposition. Uh, walk us through walk us through why a more progressive tax system might not have those desired effects. The, the usual, I mean, the, the, the game here, if you want to put it that way, is that what you try to do is tax high income people. And as a result, 
have the funds to sort of transfer to low-income people. So you make the, the tax and transfer system more progressive. And, and it, uh, it fails if when the tax you try to put on the high-income people somehow gets shifted onto the low-income people. Because then you're at best a wash and, and not getting anything done. So how does that happen? Well, one way is that what you tax with high-income people is, in fact, saving an investment. And if you sort of undermine the capacity of the economy to save and invest, eventually you lower the amount of uh, capital each worker has and the quality of their technologies and, and the things that drive worker productivity. And if, it, if you lower productivity growth, you, you lower real wage growth. And, oh, that's, that's where the middle class makes their money. They're, they're largely labor income. And so you've now moved that tax over. We did some, a, a real very careful scrub on this uh, during the debate over the Warren and Sanders wealth taxes. And, and what we found is eventually the working class plays about 60 cents out of every dollar of wealth taxes uh, created. So it's not like you're taking a dollar and giving it to the, to the middle class. You're, you're really making them 60 cents worse off and then giving a dollar. So, so that's, that's not, not what you really thought. Um, there's a similar issue, which is um, uh, you can invest instead of in machines and technologies, you can invest in people. And that's called human capital accumulation. And if you have very, very um, uh, progressive taxes, the incentive to become a, a high paid lawyer, a high paid um, uh, doctor, whatever you might think, accumulate that skill and capital is going to be diminished. Again, the question is how much. And but if you if you do that, you are now imposing that uh, that tax on people who who didn't get out of the middle class and bear the burden of it. Some folks at the the um, Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis and, and co-authors took a look at the U.S. system and, and the kinds of inequality that that we've had. Is it uh, just literally people were born with more unequal uh, inheritances or was it changes in skill? And it turns out a lot of it is changes in skill. So if you try to tax people heavily to undo changes in skill, you, you undermine the acquisition of skills and, and it backburners. And so it's a reason to be, to be cautious about this sort of casual notion that we can do a lot about inequality really quickly. Probably not. Right, right. You're an, another proposal you were on talking about recently. You were on Fox News earlier this week discussing uh, Biden's proposal for a green energy, uh, green economy. You made the point that that any shift away from you know the current industry, the current oil market, would result in economic upheaval and would not be costless. Can you explain what you meant by this? Uh, so I I've, I got a, a factory and I'm currently powering it with some uh, you know uh, natural gas uh, fired uh, boilers and and that gives me steam and I drive my my plant with the with the steam power. Now we're going to get rid of fossil fuels, so the nat the natural gas has to go. How am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to have, I'm going to have to uh, scrap that that approach and somehow power it with something that's clean. So that's going to have to be some sort of electricity, probably. And I'm going to have a different for that. And and can I get the the same um, uh, heat that I got before? Can I get it continuously? Am I relying on solar or or is it is it a wind? And is that going to be stable? So there are a lot of changes involved there. And, and I'm, my concern is that when people see that, you know, they say, look, they're going to have to spend money on boilers, they're going to spend money on, the, on this and that. It's all investment that's going to drive the economy. No, it's, 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 it's costly changes. You're discarding this other stuff. You're, you're throwing away stuff. That's always a cost. And you're taking somebody out of a job uh, in, in the gas industry and you have to put them somewhere else. And, and, and that takes time and, and is costly. And so uh, none of this stuff um, 
is as easy as it's advertised. And, and it, it's not ne never as stimulative as it's advertised because it takes long and has costs as well as benefits. And they just count the benefits. And that's a mistake. Mm -hmm. So this kind of proposal that if it was included in a stimulus package, you know, say in January, when if President Biden were to take office, but would actually harm the uh, economic recovery. It, it will be in with another, enough other stuff that, that it won't actually pull the economy down, but it won't be as stimulative as being advertised. This will be the Recovery Act, again, a poorly designed stimulus that was really something else in disguise on steroids. And, and we've seen this movie before, and it'll work about as well. Fair enough. Doug, I also want to take some time to discuss um, some reports on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the economy. Um, as we mentioned earlier, as you mentioned earlier, there has been a surge in cases around the world. Um, this week, France said it was going to do a four-week lockdown. I think Germany just said the same thing overnight. We've discussed your view of additional lockdowns before, but considering the growing number of cases, is it a reasonable response? Something the United States should be considering if things get much worse. There is a point where, as a matter of public health, you you must quarantine, and and that's that's you know always been the the sort of key marker, which is. Are you getting close in, in, in a region to overwhelming the capacity of the healthcare system to treat those who have uh, become ill? And, and, and as you get closer and closer to that, you get more, you get forced into more draconian um, positions. I, I just, I think in the U.S. we went too quickly to lockdowns, even for places where we weren't close to overwhelming the healthcare system. It was just somehow became a goal was to just get rid of the virus. And if we just hit it, it would go away and it, it didn't. So you there is, there is a time and place to do that, but I, I wanna be careful about how we impose those costs in the economy because they're gonna pay a big economic cost. Now they have had skyrocketing cases and, and there, there's no way around that. We don't wanna get in that position. And we, we know the recipes for avoiding it. They are number one, social distancing, but continuing to go out. Number two, wearing face masks and washing your hands and, and doing all of the, the self-care things that you can do to, to avoid uh, transmitting the virus. And then to the extent you can add on to that, some tracing uh, and some testing, then you know that, that's a more uh, powerful package, but you can go a long way with that. The question is, will the American public do it? And, and that's, that's the open question. Um, you know, we, we're tired of this. Like collectively, you could just feel it. Um, it's, it's been a long year old. Now you're asking me to, to do what I did in March all over again. And, and people are, are just sort of, you know, I think hesitant to do that. But and, and that's the that's the challenge. The leadership challenge is to get the American people united to, to rise to that and to have this second um, wave, which has always been expected, be treated effectively with less less draconian measures. That's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I feel like it is the new norm. I keep my you know, my face mask and a bottle of hand sanitizer right by my keys, which is right by my front door. So that anytime I go out, I grab all three things and, and just keep going. So hopefully, you know, people continue to do that and stay smart. It is the new norm, but, but, you know, people are social animals and the social distancing has, has imposed a big cost. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And so we got to sort of make sure that people manage to, to hold on a little while longer. Yeah. Yeah. There was an interesting study about um, like what in Bloomberg that they talked about how a city in Australia, I think, locked down for six weeks and talked about the economic and social cost of, of doing that. And it wasn't it was nothing good. So hopefully you know, we all take 
precautions necessary. And but as a sports fan, you know the best example of this phenomenon, which is Justin uh, Taylor, the Dodgers, positive uh, COVID test, um, pulled from the game because he didn't should not be around other people, going out to celebrate on the field afterwards without a mask. And everyone's like, yeah, well, he, you know, you win the World Series once in your life. You want to tell, you know, but you can't. You yeah. know? And that's we as a nation are in that situation. Yeah. yeah. You'd love to do this. And yeah, you're really going to miss something. But but you can't. Right. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's it sucks to say, but, you know, sorry. Yeah, it is what it is. Another thing that's that COVID has impacted the economy on is Axios has reported that um, there's con- that consumer confidence in the economy has started to go down due to the surge in cases. What do you make of this news? I haven't really seen that firmly in the data yet. I, I, there, there are lots of measures um, of consumer confidence, lots of people who do surveys. The gold standards, the, the University of Michigan Survey Research Center's uh, uh, Index of Consumer Sentiment. So if you get two or three months of that moving significantly, then then I'm convinced. Uh, otherwise, you know, it sort of bounces noisily from from month to month and some of the other measures even more so so I, it's a concern I'd, I'd worry about that but you know if you look at those third quarter data there's no evidence of, of a decline in consumer confidence there um and and we just have to sort of make sure that that, that continues to remain high um is there a point of which the economic damage would outweigh the health damage or do you think balancing the two is really the only way to think about this you know i, I always remind people the answer in economics is never zero or 100 percent. you're always trading off so that, you know, you're going to have some economic damage, you're going to have some health damage. You can't eliminate the economic damage because that, that that's zero damage in the economics. That you, you pay too much in health. You can't have zero health damage because you pay too much in economics. We've seen that. So we're always going to be just trying to adjust to where we are as, as long as the, the virus is present. So uh, and, and that makes it hard because the beauty of market economics is it allows individuals to make those trade-offs. I can decide just how much I want to spend my money on Diet Coke and Twizzlers, and I can get more Diet Coke and a little more Twizzlers, and I come to that balance. You make a different decision. You may not even buy Twizzlers. Mysterious to me. But but for public things, like a policy toward the virus, we have to have the same one. And so it's both hard, and there's going to always to be disagreement about whether we got to the right point in the trade-off. And that's the nature of, of these public uh, health issues, and they're hard for that reason. Mm-hmm. I always enjoy a good economic lesson from you that includes Twizzlers as the <laughs> good. Finally, Doug, final topic for today. Um, last week, uh, the Center for Health and Economy um, put out a model of an alternative healthcare proposal to the Affordable Care Act. Obviously, healthcare is big in the news this year. First off, can you explain what this proposal is and you know who wrote it? So this is a proposal from what has been known as the consensus group. It's a, a, a collection of uh, um, conservative health policy experts who have uh, for years sort of thought about what is the right next step in, in healthcare reform for the United States. It was, um, you know, has been organized uh, in, in different forms over the years, but they're the ones who, who dreamed this up. And and the AAF's role in this at the Center for Health and the Economy was to just analyze it and sort of what happens to coverage, what happens to medical costs, what happens to the federal budget. And then the motivation for this, I think, they wrote it, I don't know, but but you know, the, the Affordable Care Act's in the news, potential um, uh, striking down of the law by the Supreme Court if, if they rule that the individual mandate is unconstitutional and that it's integral to the law and can't be severed from the rest of it. Um, and, and then the question says, well, what would we do? And 
And, you know, we haven't seen Republicans in Congress come up with a, a consensus proposal. So they're trying to fill that, that vacuum. So there would be a, an alternative out there in the circumstance that Republicans had to step up and make some proposals. Um, it would essentially take the same monies that the, the federal government is spending on the ACA right now and package them up into really big block grants to states. And with those block grants would come some obligations. You would have to um, spend half the money on, on low-income people, for example, and you'd have to have some minimum benefits and you'd have to have some, some coverage uh, uh, goals. And, and so it, it doesn't abandon the objectives of the Affordable Care Act, which is to cover people and to have it tilted toward lower-income Americans, but it would allow the states lots more flexibility in doing it. And at the, at the heart of, of this proposal is that desire to have more flexibility, take more advantage of state um, healthcare markets as, as economic entities and have them be more uh, competitive and, and generate lower costs. Uh, it's not meant to save money. So this isn't a big cutting, you know, it spends basically the same amount of money, uh, saves $36 billion over 10 years, which is nothing. Um, so, you know, it's, it's the same money deployed very differently. And uh, you get uh, some some increases in coverage, modest, um, uh, and but you get uh, big increases in medical productivity, and as a result, um, you start bending the cost curve in healthcare. Mm -hmm. So my next question was, what what did that model show? Was that basically what what it That's, showed? Those are the key results, and um, you know, I, I I thought I thought it was uh, good to see such proposals come out. We haven't seen something from from anyone for a while, and and this is going to heat up. Um, in particular, if Vice President brought uh, Biden is elected. He's proposed, quote, Biden care is what he's labeled it. It, it beefs up the Affordable Care Act um, with more subsidies. Right now, the subsidies go away. If you get to 400 percent of the federal poverty line, he can get rid of that cap. And so there'd be a lot more subsidy money that got spent. He would uh, lower the Medicare eligibility age to 60, which is a pretty big deal, because then you're taking about five years worth of relatively costly older Americans, getting them out of the pool. And, and that would uh, change the premiums. And he's advertised that he's going to have a public option, which is essentially a government insurance plan you could, you could buy on the exchanges. There's never been a lot of detail about this. Um, in its minimal form, it'd be just another selection available for a limited number of people. Who knows? But he said that it would cost $750 billion in the debate, and that means it's a big deal. It's available in the, to people who are currently in the individual market, but also – you could get it. You're you're being uh, you're in the small group market, um, getting your insurance through AAF, or if you have a you work for a large corporation and you work for um, uh, someone in the large group market, you'd be eligible as well. And so, if if they really put out uh, an option that all those people were eligible for, and it was uh, extremely cheap, subsidized effectively through the taxpayer, you could see a massive reshuffling of insurance markets. So. There'll be a lot of people who are going to want to know what's going on. We're going to see a big debate over this yet again. Yeah. On the flip side, say, if, you know, President Trump wins re-election, um, you know, they haven't really put out a comprehensive health care plan. Republicans struggle to come to an agreement on what to do um, with health care. Could we this proposal as a GOP alternative to the ACA? Yeah, um, you, you very well could see that. Or you could simply see the president continue to do what he's done for the past couple of years, use his executive authorities and the programs, Medicare and Medicaid, and, and try to drive change through them. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, it would then be heavily focused on states. That's where Medicaid resides, uh, heavily uh, focused on, on older um, Americans because of the Medicare program. And 
very different from the coverage-heavy proposals of the Biden side. So they're, they're really quite different approaches. Well, hopefully in a week from now, we'll have a much clearer picture of what is about to happen and with the election being over, and hopefully we'll know what the result is. But uh, as always, Doug, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.